Amen. Well, that was wonderful to sing with you, and you sound beautiful. Hey, if I haven't met you, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here, and welcome to Mercy Road Church. Welcome to our first 9 a.m. indoor service. Normally, we do an outdoor service at this time, but if you if you noticed, it's 36 degrees out, so it's a little, little chilly. Uh, and we will do one more outdoor service uh, next week, weather permitting, at 9 a.m., and then the 1030 indoors. But uh, however you've come this morning to worship, I just want to let you know that God has led you here, I really believe that, and he has a good plan for your life, and even if you, your heart is filled with grief or anxiety or uh, just uncertainty, God's heart is not filled with any of those things, and, and this is a very safe, renewing place to be. We're in a sermon series called Identity Crisis, or Identity Issues, rather, and it's built on this term, identity crisis, and that term didn't come out until the 50s. Eric Erickson was a psychologist who coined that. And it's interesting, if you think about it, in world history, for, for most of world history, wherever you were born, that's kind of where you died, for the most part, because people didn't travel, and it wasn't until the advent of the railroad, and then um, just modernity itself, that people were able to move and really have a lot of free choice when it came to what you would do for an occupation and the kind of life you would, you would live. So for most of human history, your identity was kind of fixed, you know, you were... You were the occupation that your parents oftentimes were, and there wasn't a lot of choice in life. And it was only recently in human history that, that people have really started to quake with anxiety over who am I, this question, where do I fit? What am I supposed to do in life? Identity issues, and we're talking about that. That's in the, the news, it's in the political uh, debate right now, and we're looking at the Gospel of John primarily, and we're looking at encounters that Jesus has with different individuals who seem to be struggling with questions of identity. We looked last week at Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and that was kind of part one, and today is part two. So if you, if you missed that message, just by way of recap, we said last week that, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus after hours in the dark because he really is, is a little embarrassed to reach out to this uh, young Jewish rabbi why is he embarrassed? He's asking a primary question that if anybody should have had the answer to it would have been Nicodemus. He's a well-respected, highly educated religious leader of his day. He has the answers. He knows he is a devout Jew. He knows where he fits in the world. And he comes to Jesus, and essentially he says, where do I fit? Am I really a child of God? I know on paper I am. I know I've been born into this ethnic group, but does God really love me? Does he have a plan for my life? These are the questions underneath the questions. And Jesus, kind of anticipating that question, says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And we looked at that little Greek word last, last week. The, the Greek word for again actually can mean a second time, like again in English. That's how we translate it. Or it can mean um, just as often uh, born from above. And Jesus goes on, and the context will will say and, and make it evident that he, Jesus is not saying born again a second time. He's saying born from above. He talks about the Spirit of God coming to live in us and acting kind of like the wind. And you don't really see the wind, but you sure feel the effects of the wind. In the same way, you don't really see the family resemblance of somebody who's born into the family of God. You don't see that physical resemblance, but you sure see it like you see the effects of the wind. And, and the anticipation in John 3 is building by this point. Nicodemus really wants to know, basically, how do I know that I'm a child 
of God. And we get to this very interesting part of scripture. I'm going to read it for you. Uh, John 3, 14 through 17, and it references a part in Numbers. So we're going to be in both of those places. John 3, I'm reading from the NIV, and I'm going to start here at 14. Jesus explaining to this religious leader late in the evening says, verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So, you know, you see the signs at sporting events, or you did before the pandemic, of John 3.16, right? And usually it doesn't include that bit right before John 3.16 about the snake being lifted up. And yet, if you've ever, you know, gone to the hospital or looked at an ambulance and you see that little emblem, what is on that little emblem, medical people? It's a bronze pole with a bronze snake wrapped around it, going all the way back to the narrative that we read in Numbers, the book of Numbers. So we're going to go there just for context. Numbers chapter 21, and this is kind of a crazy story. And before uh, I read this, I want to share, I was watching on Disney Plus. Any, anybody have Disney Plus here? It's a, it's a life changer for you parents. It's worth that $9.99 a month or whatever it is. Uh, Disney Plus had, uh, gosh, a documentary on animals and safaris, and I was watching this, and there was an episode where this little kid was on a safari with his parents, and they get out of the Jeep because they see a mamba, a dead black mamba snake, and, and that's one of the most deadly snakes ever, and so the kid's like seven years old, and the parents, yeah, you can go pick up this dead snake, and so they pick up this, he picks up this dead mamba, and somehow he pricks his finger with its teeth. And this begins a, a terrible, epic six-hour journey where they try to get him help. Now, a mamba has enough venom in its, in its jaws to kill like 17 fully grown men or something like that. It's the most deadly snake there, there is, really. And it's really fast, and it's, it's just crazy. And, and so I'm watching this thinking, man, I hate snakes. I hated snakes before, but now I really, I mean, a dead one can even kill, kill you. The kid survived, plot spoiler, so that's good. But, but, but I mean, just that's what I was kind of marinating. And, and then uh, Tom and Chad and Carrie and I write these messages and, and marinate on, on God's word. And this comes up in the text. And I'm thinking, I can't preach about snakes. I'm, I'm afraid of snakes. But here we go. Numbers 21, verse 4. This is God's people. They're, they're led out of slavery in e Egypt, and they're being led by Moses, God's anointed leader, and they're getting cranky. On road trips, parents, you, you relate to this. Your kids get cranky. They turn on you. So verse 4, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Are we there yet, Dad, right? They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. 
and we detest this miserable food. Now, the irony is there actually was bread and there was water, so this is kind of the sin of ingratitude starts to play tricks on, on, your, on your perception. But they're, they're uh, complaining about the manna that God has provided. The Hebrew word for manna literally means what is it? So it's kind of this mysterious food that appears. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What an odd story. If you're taking notes, the first thing I'd like us to, to consider from this text, well, both of these texts, is this. We're all suffering from the snake bite of sin. You know, we live in a really interesting, kind of a terrible time. We're in a cultural moment where, you know, you get 10 yards for piling on. It's like, we've got the pandemic, we've got the racial unrest, we've got an election year and all the political division. And, and our president now has the coronavirus and, and there's just so much chaos going on. A lot of people are going through economically challenging times. There's a lot of fear. And Christians, I believe, have the best answer for the, the question, why is it so broken? Why is this like this? Why are there so many snakes? We would say that God created a good world, but he created a world with people and spiritual beings who will last forever, who have free will. We can make choices. Do you know that? You have the choice to do what God wants you to do or to do the very thing that God does not want you to do. You can make anything you want out of your life. You have free will, and so do I. Because of that, people have turned towards our own selfish, self-absorbed way, and the collective response and result of all of that is a lot of chaos and brokenness. And yet God in his mercy adapts, and, and he has a salvation plan for all of this, and he even uses the brokenness and the chaos to grow us and mature us, and yet we're all suffering from the snake bite of sin. The picture that we're given in, in the book of Genesis is a serpent, a spiritually deceptive being, kind of whispering lies into the ears of our spiritual father and mother, saying, you know, if you would just take this shortcut, if you would just reach out and grab the one thing you know you're not supposed to grab, then you could be like God. God is actually trying to keep something from you. God's actually not in your corner. He doesn't actually like you. He's actually deceiving you, and we bought that lie hook, line, and sinker. And the result of that, the result of believing the lies of a serpent is living with the, the bite of a serpent. A serpent's bite is deadly, even a dead mamba on the side of the road. So think about that. We are all suffering from a snake bite. When I uh, grew up, I got the privilege to uh, work on my grandpa's ranch in western Montana every summer. I was flown out there, and uh, I would change sprinkler pipes. Not a very glamorous job, but got to ride a horse and ride out there, and then I would just 
let the horse kind of graze, and I would just change pipe after pipe. And I remember my grandpa teaching me how to do that, and he said, you got to be careful, kind of shake it a little bit in case there's a snake in the sprinkler pipe, which is terrifying when you're like 12 years old. So, you know, you kind of shake that, and then he goes, in fact, here's a little snake bite kit, and it, it's a little tube that he gave me, and there's a little razor in there. He's like, just cut if you get bit, and then you put this side of it on, and it sucks the venom out. And, you know, I mean, your imagination at 12, you're like, wow, I'm going to have to, like, cut myself and suck the venom out? This is, a, this is tough. They don't pay well enough. Um, but, but, you know, that really showed me early on that we live in a world where snakes are real. And people get bit. And more accurately, theologically speaking, we live in a world where everybody has been bitten. And this is the picture we're given. That's really what happens when God's people, who have been rescued from the slavery of sin, turn back to the comforts of sin. In their case, it was this deep sense of ingratitude, questioning God's motives. Whatever the form of sin, it, it really resembles the original sin, which is a lack of trust in God. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. Many of you who grew up in church have memorized this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who is righteous, not one. Now, sometimes I'll meet somebody who really feels that they don't fit into that category. They're the type of person who says, like, I think maybe I made a mistake once, but actually, no, I was mistaken. It, I was perfect, right? You know, I mean, that's a cheesy joke. You laugh there, right? You know, everybody, though, everybody has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And in this sense, everybody is suffering from a snake bite. Now, when you get bit by a venomous snake, time is of essence. You have to move. You have to get that venom out or you have to get an anti-venom. And so that leads us really to the next point. Secondly, not only are we all suffering from the snake bite of sin, God doesn't spare us from the snake bite of sin. It seems like an obvious point, but think about this. I run into people all the time as a pastor who, whose faith hinges on this question. It's as if they're saying, why doesn't God, if he's God, kill all the snakes? I mean, I'm going camping next week in Taylor's Falls. We have a little pop-up. We're going to go camping. I know it's going to be cold. But if there were snakes there, and I had it in my power to kill all the snakes so my kids wouldn't run into those snakes, I would do it because I'm a good father. And so the logic goes something like this. God, if you're a good father and you love us, why wouldn't you kill all the snakes in the world? Why allow snakes to bite us? It's a good question. A dear friend of mine uh, who I grew up with had a real strong faith, really has been in a season of wavering right now. Her child uh, was abused by someone close to her family, and, and it really shook her faith. And, and I see the question underneath the pain. It's pretty obvious. It's like, God, how could you have let that happen to my kid if you're a good father? Why would that have happened? Some of you today, that's where you are. You, your faith was vibrant once, and you trusted in God, and now you're saying, I, I look at my 401k, and I look at my health, I look at the world we're living in, and it's like, God, if you're such a good God, how in the world are you okay with it going like this? How have you left me fending for myself. How did that person die? Why did the sickness come? How can there be childhood cancer? How do kids get molested? Fill in the tragedy. It's a good question. 
in Numbers is really interesting, Numbers 21, because the people say, all right, we get it, Moses, ask God to take the snakes away. And Moses actually prays for that. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Nowhere in that narrative does it say God removes all the snakes. Instead, he, he gives some sort of symbolic bronze prop. And he said, you just look at this. When the snakes, if the snakes bite you, if this continues to be a problem in your life, look at this and you'll live. He doesn't kill the snakes. He gives the antivenom. It's a really interesting move by God. And it begs the question, why? Why does God allow us to live in a world where snakes bite people, people die, people suffer, where sin has, you know, ripple effects on all of us, our own sin, the sins of other people, the sins of leaders, the sins of other nations? Why, if God could just fix it all, kill all the snakes, does he not do that? You know, theologians through the centuries have, have processed that, and I believe the best, most intellectually honest answer is this, God seems much more interested in a salvation process than just bubble wrapping his children. I have three kids, nine, seven, and four, and especially the little girl, because she's the youngest, although she's probably the toughest, but, you know, I have this desire to bubble wrap my children. It's a weird, weird desire, but at times I just don't want them ever to get hurt. Any, any parents or grandparents resonate with that? You just look at them and you just kind of, if you've lived life at all and you've had bumps and bruises in life, you just kind of look at them and you look at the world and you're like, oh, they're going to get hurt. Snakes are going to bite them. Oh, no. But if I just put enough layers of bubble wrap on them, maybe I can save them. But, but a good parent, a good grandparent knows deep down in our gut that if we do that, if we bubble wrap our children, if we expend every effort possible to spare them from every pain imaginable, they will never grow up to be men and women who have the virtues of their heavenly father. They will never know what it is to have courage or fortitude or to, to have to forgive when forgiveness is very hard. They'll never know what it's like to have true empathy. They won't have the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's only in the fire that the virtues we so desperately want in our own children are forged, and you know that's true. And it's why we allow them to take risks and do things. What if God is no different? What if God is actually a much better parent than you are? What if God knows that allowing his children to be on the journey where snakes may in fact bite them, will in fact bite them, is somehow worth it because the destination, the men and women that he dreams for us to become, wills for us to become, is worth it. You know deep down the person you most admire, the virtues in your own heart that you most admire, have not happened through comfort and ease and avoiding challenges. 
It happens through suffering. It happens through snake bites and learning how to press on. So God doesn't kill all the snakes in the world. We don't fully understand it, but we certainly have some instinctual guesses as to why he would allow that. And rather than killing them, he, he gives this odd thing, this bronze pole with a bronze snake, and he's like, Moses, just have the people look at it, and the minute they look on it, they'll live. Now, we can assume that the snake bites kind of went down, and when that happened, people would survive. It wouldn't kill them, and yet the pain was still real. And maybe the pain is there because pain is such a powerful teacher. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf and stubborn world. We're all suffering from the snake bite of sin. God does not spare us from the snake bite of sin. Thirdly, and we'll spend the most time on this, God saves us when we simply acknowledge the source and the solution of sin. God saves us when we simply acknowledge the source and the solution of sin. Let's go back to John 3, 14 through 17. So we're, we're following Nicodemus, and Nicodemus has this incredible encounter with Jesus, a young rabbi, and he said, I, I clearly know that you've come from God. Nobody could do the wonders, the signs and the wonders that you do, Jesus, without coming from God. And he's building up to a question, and Jesus anticipates the question, and he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God that you're talking about until you're born from above, Nicodemus. Nicodemus here is born again, and so he goes on that whole bit about, you can't really enter in your mother's womb again, and Jesus is like, you're probably a biology major. Good for you. Yeah, you can't. No, don't try that. That's weird. Born from above, like that's what I mean, Nicodemus, as in the very spirit of God indwells you. Nicodemus, looking like a deer in headlights, kind of begs another question, and Jesus says, you're like a teacher, you're, you're a rabbi, you've memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, like when you were 10, how do you not get this? Like, if you don't understand the basics, how are you going to understand the, the, the complex things, the heavenly things? And, and Jesus is kind of being hard on Nicodemus, who is just going through identity issues. Jesus is saying, you don't understand what it means to be a child of God, and you're a teacher of my people? It's not being born into an ethnic group. It's not the color of your skin. It's something much more important. And then he starts referencing scripture that Nicodemus would have memorized as a kid. Remember when God's people were traveling through the desert and they stopped trusting God and they almost mutinied on Moses and these snakes came out and they started to bite and some people died? Remember that, Nicodemus? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. What did Moses do? God told him to make a bronze pole with the bronze snake and lift it up and everybody who would look on that would live. So too the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, Nicodemus must have been like, whoa, I remember the book of Daniel, the son of man, refers to the Messiah. He probably got nervous at that point. He's like, I knew this rabbi was sharp, and I saw the signs and wonders. Is he just telling me that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited rescuer of our people and all of humankind? Whoa. And he has to be lifted up? 
And then his mind must have gone in a hundred different directions. What does lifted up mean? Does that mean he's going to overthrow Rome that has a, a political boot on our neck and we're going to be victorious and we're going to have this strong military and nobody can touch us and we'll be safe again? Is this what I'm witnessing? Am I standing before the Messiah and he's going to start a revolution and we'll have this age of peace and prosperity and might? And we stand on the other side of 2,000 years of perspective and we see what lifted up means, don't we? Consequently, Nicodemus, many scholars believe, became a believer after the crucifixion. He advocated for Jesus. He realized it was an unfair trial. And he started to, no doubt, remember those conversations after hours and think to himself, lifted up, snake on a pole, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And all who look on this lifted up Son of Man will live. Jesus goes on in chapter 3 with this confused Nicodemus, poor guy. And, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Imagine a world for a moment where everybody was bit by a, a black mamba and one person sent by God came with the anti-venom and all who would receive it would live. But in this very odd thought experiment in this world, a number of people started to point at the very person with the anti-venom and say, he has come to condemn us. His truth is too narrow. How dare he suggest that there is an anti-venom for what ails us all. In fact, I'm not even so sure that this will lead to death, this snake bite thing. I think we could walk this off. I think it'll be fine. That is the world we're living in. We're all bitten by sin, and sin leads to death. And there is one who offers the anti-venom, and many people would say, just the, just the mere suggestion that there is a solution, that there's an anti-venom, is an offense to my pride. It's too exclusive. If you are a proud person, you will not want this good news because it offends the pride, doesn't it? You're saying, I have to look at a snake on a pole and I'm going to be fine? Are you kidding me? I mean, imagine you have a terminal disease. You are struggling with cancer and you've gone through it chemo after chemo and throwing up and you're, you're just doing the best you can. You're barely holding on. You're really at the stage four mark and it's not looking good. And all of a sudden a doctor comes in the room and says, here's the deal. I've got a 30 second video. If you just watch it, you'll be fully better. You'd be like, what? You want me to watch 30 seconds of a video and that's going to cure my cancer? That sounds too easy. That's offensive. I've been struggling for months to try to fix this thing, to eradicate these tumors. And you're telling me I look for 30 seconds at a video and it's better? Yes. Would you watch it? I would. But there would be a part of me that would be offended. Be, like, that just seems too simple. That seems too good to be true. What about the people who we don't really want to get better? who have hurt us deeply, who are on the wrong side of whatever tribe we find ourselves on. 
that might offend us too. You mean they get to be absolved of all their sin? They get to have the anti-venom just free and easy? They don't pay for it? They just watch the 30 seconds? They just look at the snake on the pole? They just look at the Son of God on a cross and they believe and, and they get to have eternity with the living, loving, forgiving God? Sins erased? Even that sin that took my child, that hurt me in that profound way? Yes. That is the scandal of the cross, my friends. That is the, the challenging magnitude of the good news about Jesus Christ. God saves us when we simply acknowledge the source and the solution of our sin. This is just a mystery. God enters into human history in all of our brokenness, all of us suffering from a snake bite, all of us destined to, to die. And he says, look at my son lifted up on a cross. And the moment you do, and you put your trust, your genuine trust in him, the moment you just look at yourself and say, I am sinful. Sure, some people are more sinful than me, but it doesn't matter. That's like saying, he has more mamba venom in him than me. That's a ridiculous argument. It really is. You're going to die. A mamba bit you, right? It doesn't matter if he's got more or she's got more. You're going to die. The minute you acknowledge your brokenness, your futile efforts to clean yourself up, your sinfulness, and the minute you look at the cross and say, I believe, I don't fully understand it, but I believe that somehow, someway, God, the God who made me, sent his only son to die on that cross for me, and that is the anti-venom. The minute that happens, your eternity is secure. Now think about that. This should have profound implications for how we navigate our cultural moment right now. For one, when it comes to your identity, you know, this desire to be special, to be faster, stronger, prettier, more popular, richer than other people, distinguish yourself, make a name for yourself, that can go away. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You don't have to be that special because you're so special that the God of the universe died for you and healed the deadly venom in your blood by infusing his own blood into yours. I mean, how much do you matter if the God of the universe loves you enough to do that for you? It really should take away a lot of those social pressures to be something you're not or to prop yourself up or exaggerate or go on LinkedIn and really like shine up your resume or whatever. So it really does ground our identity as a child of God and maybe that's what Nicodemus really wanted to know. Deep down, am I a child of God? Jesus said you can be, but not by birth, not by physical birth. It'll be like a birth from above. It'll be like God coming down and you looking up and seeing him lifted up. And the minute you do, you're saved. Then the question simply becomes, do you resemble your heavenly father? Well, let's see. Our heavenly father is radically loving and gracious. He cares about justice and mercy. He is forgiving beyond forgiving. He is creative. He goes after those who are hurting and lost, even when they're difficult to love and reach. Do you resemble any of those things? Do you have that spiritual resemblance? You can. 
You've already been born from above. You're already in the family tree now. Now it's just a matter of following your father. Salvation requires the very thing we failed to give God, would be another way to think about this, our sincere trust. If the sin in the beginning was, God, I don't trust you. I think you're holding something back from me. I don't know that you have your best, my best intentions and outcome in mind. I think you're out to get me. I think you're mad at me. I think you want to squash me. If that's where sin starts in our deceptive heart, then the salvation that we need must start by saying, God, I don't get it all, but I trust you. I believe you're good. I believe you have the anti-venom. Even though you don't eradicate all the snakes in my immediate area, I know that no snake will overtake me because you love me. And because you put your trust in this God, you're changed. You're secure forever. And, and this has implications for how we go about our cultural moment, not just with identity, but also with security. Some of us are scared out of our wits right now. What if I don't have enough money? What if I get laid off? What if I go hungry? What if I get the coronavirus? What if our, our nation is on the brink of collapse and the wrong political party gets in? Those are real fears. But they're not more real than the salvation offered to you. Do you realize that you'll be like 50,000 years old someday? That when you go in the ground, you're not going to stay there? You'll have a new body. You'll live in a renewed heaven and earth in a perfect version of what we experience now. A version that has no snakes. And you'll look back on this life like a foggy memory with a deep sense of gratitude for how kind God was to you in your preschool days. If that's true, and I believe it is with every fiber of my being, this should give us a very unique resource to navigate our current moment. We should not be people of fear or anxiety or panic or gossip or shame. We're forgiven, we're free, we have eternity stretching out before us, and now the only thing that matters is loving other people and loving God well. The only thing that matters is starting to resemble the Heavenly Father who has adopted us who has made us his child. The only thing that matters is telling other people to look upon the Son of Man who is lifted up on the cross and say, just look on him and live. Just look on him. You've got snakes all over you, bro. <laughs> look at him. He loves you. His arms are outstretched. He's dying for you. And the moment you look and you really believe, you enter into his family God is amazingly gracious to those who want to survive the snake bite. Chad and I were talking about this message, and he told me a story about this guy, and it was pretty remarkable. Somebody gave him a Bible, and he was struggling. He was poor, and he was addicted, and he said, don't give me that, because you, do you know what I'm going to do with that? And the missionary said, no, what are you going to do with that? I hope you'll read it. He said, no, I'm actually going to tear the pages out, and I'm going to roll up cigarettes and marijuana and stuff and smoke it because I, I could use some paper. I feel kind of bad about smoking the Bible, so you should, shouldn't give me that. And he's like, well, your soul matters so much to God that here's what we're going to do. I am going to give you a Bible, and if you're going to smoke it, you're going to smoke it. But would you promise me one thing? Would you read the page before you smoke them? 
And he goes, okay. But I'm not, I can't do the whole Old Testament, all that. Okay, okay. Just start with the Gospel of John. It's the, the account of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It explains in a very straightforward way why Jesus came into the world, how we need him. So you're okay with me smoking the Bible? Well, no, I'm not really okay with you smoking the Bible, but if you're going to smoke the Bible, you're going to smoke the Bible. But I'm just saying read the pages before you smoke it. So he does. He opens to John, and he reads in the beginning. Okay, the Logos. I think I, I don't know what that means. I kind of get it. <whistles> Rolls, smokes. Next. Okay, okay, smokes. He gets to John chapter 3. How many cigarettes is that? I don't know. Probably like 80-some. Depends on if he cuts the pages in half. I don't know. He gets to John 3, and he reads it, and tears well up in his eyes, and he stops ripping the pages out of the Bible. He accepts the forgiving love of Jesus Christ, and his life has changed. Some of us have lived the equivalent of a weird back-and-forth life of smoking the Bible and reading it, reading it and smoking it. Maybe today is the day that we stop ripping those pages out and we start believing, really believing, that when the Son of Man is lifted up, we can be born from above, we can have our eternity secured, and now we can get busy doing what those pages tell us to do. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the encounter that you have had with uh, Nicodemus. I look forward to meeting him someday. And uh, thank you, Lord, that Mercy Road Church, we're, we're a very imperfect church full of very imperfect people, and yet we, by your grace, have, have come upon this wonderful, almost too good to be true news, the, the best news ever, the news that though we have been bitten by the, the snake bite of sin and though that is real and death follows that you have given us in your son the one anti-venom that we so desperately need help us to look upon your son not just once but every day lord if there's anybody in the room here who is just skeptical and has questions would your holy spirit just minister to them in ways that speak to them not in a way that pressures them, but in a way that invites them to trust you. For anyone who is just feeling like they're at the end of their rope today, would, would you just remind them, would you whisper to them that this will pass. You're with them. You have a wonderful plan for their life. Would you just whisper to them, keep going. It's worth it. We love you, Lord. We ask that would continue to root our identity firmly as your child, as your son, as your daughter. In Jesus' name, amen.